Hello, and welcome to episode 13B of Arts and Crass, the highbrow, lowbrow film podcast. This is Cullen with another special intro. Uh, Todd and I are continuing our coverage of the films we saw at this year's Virginia Film Festival. You can check out part one, if you haven't already, for some uh, general info about the fest, as well as our thoughts on the first eight films we saw. What you're about to hear is part two, which goes over the next eight films, all the way from Saturday evening to the end of the festival on Sunday night. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming next time, but for now, uh, enjoy a little bit of Film Fest chat. Thanks. Jesus was a Capricorn, he ate organic foods. He believed in love and peace and never wore no shoes. Long hair, beard, and sandals, and a funky bunch of friends. Reckon they just nail him up if he come down again. Cause everybody's gotta have somebody to look down on. Who they can feel better than at any time they please. Someone doing something dirty, decent, post, and frown on. You can't find nobody else and help yourself to me. So, um, I, the next film I attended, I was back at, um, oh no, I was not at Newcomb Hall, I was at Culbreth Theater at UVA, um, uh, also a very nice theater to see a film in, I took in two screenings there, um, yeah, all, as I said, exhibition-wise, everything was, everything I saw was great, um, this is another film that had to do with a fallen angel, this film was called Last Days in the Desert, and it is directed by Rodrigo Garcia, who I'm sure is incredibly sick of having it pointed out that he is the son of Colombian author Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, Talking I'm about sure he's realism. yeah, I'm sure he's sick of having it pointed out, but everybody wants to point it out because it's 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 pretty cool. Uh, it is pretty cool. So, um, this is a film where Ewan McGregor portrays Jesus, who is, um, it's it's during the forty days where it says in the Bible that Jesus wandered in the desert, and uh, during which time he was tempted by the devil. That's pretty much all it says in the Bible. Uh, there's, um, depending on which gospel, I think there's different things that they say happen, but absolutely the 40 days, all of the 40 days is not accounted for. So, um, this is where Rodrigo Garcia, who wrote it and directed it, decided that he could, uh, tell a story of his own creation, um, during that time. So, uh, you do have Jesus, who is portrayed by Ewan McGregor, also the devil, who uh, accompanies him and tempts him along the way, is also portrayed by Ewan McGregor. Hmm. Uh, Interesting casting to uh, have him play both roles. Um, And the... uh, I I went into this film thinking that it was going to be Jesus wandering in the desert. It's really not. He wanders a little while, but most of the film is spent in the company of this family that he comes across. There's a father um, who's like in his 50s, uh, portrayed by uh, Kieran Hines, the Irish actor, I think. 
Um, there is a son who's about 13, 14, and the mother who is very sick and uh, at, at death's door, essentially. And they live out in the desert um, in a tent, and there's nobody around for miles and miles. They're very isolated out there. And there's some drama involving this family. The son wants to go to Jerusalem and make something of himself. The father wants the son to stay um, in, the, in the family uh, home and stay out there in the desert helping him. Uh, and basically Jesus becomes involved in the struggles of this family and he makes a wager with the devil saying that if he can um, satisfy, if he can figure out a way to solve these families' problems to the satisfaction of all the members, then the devil will leave him alone. Uh, and so you watch as uh, Jesus tries to uh, figure it out. There's the sense that Jesus is learning how to be a Messiah. He's learning how to relate to people and how to be a savior of mankind on a very small personal level rather than on the large level that we, we tend to think of knowing the story. Interesting concept. Interesting concept. And there's also lots of stuff about fathers and son relationships and about... Um, Sort of the uh, the historicity of the space is used a lot. Um, I'm wishing I remembered more of the biblical references from the 40 Days and 40 Nights Lost. Uh, well, there's not really much um, not. in there. Yeah. So this film was a mixed bag for me. It was shot by... Um, <laughs> I was just about to... Lubeski, is that how you say it? Yes, yeah, how you say it. Manuel Lubeski, probably the greatest living cinematographer. <laughs> Certainly one of the top three greatest um, living cinematographers. So it looks gorgeous. There's nothing but these huge desert landscapes. I'm not sure so where... So did it own up to what I would expect of Lubeski? I'm not sure where visually. they shot. Yeah, I mean, imagine Lubeski given free reign to shoot <laughs> the, the, desert. the desert in the most magnificent John Ford fashion. It seems like that alone, especially you adding in the John Ford reference, um, seems yeah. like that alone um, would, would be enough for me to want to watch it for eye candy. The grandeur of the desert is very um, is is very well represented, and there's some interesting framing, not not ostentatious in its visual style, but very, very, it's a, it is a beautiful looking film. So I'm guessing he squeezed this in between his work with Terrence Malick and Yuri too. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. So now this is the kind of film where somebody's standing there and there's like, they're just like standing there looking up at the sky for like a minute in silence. And then somebody walks up to them and says something like quasi profound and then walks away and you're left staring up at the sky for another minute, pondering how deep that was. Was it a water house? And then we cut to, <laughs> and then we cut to another scene that's pretty much the same. I had one big problem with this film, and you're going to think me petty. Blue-eyed Jesus. <laughs> I don't think you petty at all. Uh, Not in the least. I really wanted, because after, in the Q&A, they Skyped in the director. Mm -hmm. The producer... I was going to ask about that, how that was. The producer was there in person, and they Skyped in the director from Michigan in his Airbnb, 
and he was on the huge screen, and there were a lot of questions. I really wanted to raise my hand and just be like, so, Blue-Eyed Jesus, we're still doing that, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And it's not just Jesus. Everybody in this film is white. There's only... I guess five actors. One actress only shows up in one scene. Uh, other than that, it's pretty much these four actors. Everybody's white. Obviously intentional and obviously quite aware of what they were doing. Um, you have that to they, be, that right? They have to be playing to the mythical pop culture percep- or perceptions of Jesus and, and our um, imagery that, it, that has been fed to us within that context and had to have been embracing that because it's not like they're yeah. fooling themselves about what they're doing. I feel like in this day They weren't and trying age, to be historically correct. Right, but why? Like, right, like why? <laughs> like I, I think that... Particularly when you're a it, Mexican it, director that, that right. had well, the capabilities... Well, he's Colombian. Of, or Colombian that had the capabilities of going a very different direction and you cast all very white, red European actors. It seems like a small thing, but I feel like there have been so many portrayals of white Jesus that by now... Kind of like with the reason that Todd gave I Saw the Light uh, a low brow. Not because it's bad, but just because we don't need any more of this. <laughs> right. And if people support this, there's going to be more right. of it. If people right. spend money on this white Jesus movie, there's going to be another white Jesus movie. So within the existentialist pondering that I'm perceiving was, was strewn throughout this film, and the obviously very obvious play on pop culture myth presentation of Jesus and using that as the context for expressing these existentialist um, indulgences. Um, Was there value there? Was there sophistication in the ponderings? Was there anything that challenged your thought or made you reflect upon it in a way that you haven't before? Did it justify itself conceptually in any way? I'm going to say that I think it did, but not for me. Okay. I think there's plenty of room for this to appeal to. I think this film... Heavy or gratuitous at all? Yeah. Heavy and gratuitous, but not without value. Okay, good. In my mind, I am like seeing the imagery, and I know Lubeski well, and I know desert scenery well. I've got a pretty nice image in my head of what this film might have looked like. Um, Don't you think that Casting it historically would have added more potency to those existential, existential ponderings as opposed to less. One would think. That, that it seems like framing it with the pop culture impressions actually probably took away some of the power of the existential ponderings if you're going to make that yeah. film. That it would have probably gained some, some grind and some gut if he had cast it historically accurately. One, one would think, wouldn't one? Okay. One that, would that, think. That's what I really wanted to ask. Yeah, another what missed opportunity. What a shame. Um, so but you know what? Ewan McGregor doesn't come in that color. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying don't see it. it. It really didn't do anything for me. I'm giving it a low brow, but that's purely subjective. Okay, this is great. So, so on both Devil films, we're saying, guys, go check them out and challenge us, yeah. basically. Hey, um, that, that, that we obviously have mixed feelings and, and, and are even questioning our own perceptions and only speaking subjectively. So invite any uh, listeners out there to, uh, to view these films and, and show us something that we didn't see. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So what was, uh, that was, oh, no, that was not my last film on the, f- on the Saturday. I did see one more, but I think you saw one in between. I did. Um, I saw a very interesting documentary at PVCC. So after running home from Lucifer to change clothes, I drove off outside of downtown, which I did very little of during the festival, very intentionally. But this was one that immediately was very high on my list um, when I went through the 
um, original um, screenings when they were released. Um, the story itself, I, I wanted to watch a documentary that would make me cry and raise my arms in the air and cheer and um, say, my God, I can't believe humans can do that much. And that's exactly what I got. And, um, and thank goodness for it. Um, with that being said, this was a high production, seemingly high budgeted, I can't truly say that, seemingly high budgeted documentary by Scott Hayes, who is a relatively well-known Hollywood actor. Um, has been in some pretty mainstream fare. Um, and this was his directorial debut. So this was obviously a passion piece for his. The way he expressed it in the Q&A was that he heard Bill Clinton speaking one time and felt a calling to go and make an important film. Um, now, when he said this, it seems like a nice guy, but it came across as a lot of Hollywood pretension, to tell you the truth. And the minute he said Bill Clinton as his reason for wanting to make this film, I almost went and started laughing, to tell you the truth. But regardless of that, it seemed like a really nice dude and obviously had a very obvious intent, or a very honest intent, I mean, because the film came across very honest and very true to the subject matter. Um, so I'm going to read you what this is about, and then I'm you know what? I'm not going to read you what this is about. I'm going to tell you what this was about. Um, Moli basically is a man um, in Kenya who was orphaned at age eight or nine, literally abandoned by his family, a child on the streets without a family. Um, I'm sure most of you in the Western world can't even fathom um, the pain, the confusion, the suffering that comes from that. He took up begging by default and lived the next 15 years, uh, the next seven years of his life or so as a beggar. So until age 15 or so, at which point he came across one friendly household that welcomed him in, gave him honest work, um, taught him the value of work and says it was one of those turning points in his life when he realized he could be something. So the story of a poor orphaned street child in Kenya with no opportunity that had been begging and scraping and considering suicide for many, many years that gets welcomed into one home given labor and to make a short story, long story mm -hmm. short, <laughs> many years later, he is a multimillionaire that owns 10 or 15 different companies, everything from garages to buses to bus lines that are all flourishing and maybe the richest man in Kenya, certainly one of the richest men in Kenya. Um, it started off with him being a hardworking man that left this family and the work he had done there on very good terms and said farewell to them to open up his own bus travel line where he simply drove people on a bus. Because of his very charismatic personality, he became that guy that everybody wanted <laughs> to ride on his little bus. So they would wait for an hour, skip all the big buses, just to wait to ride on Moly. I forget what he called it, Moly something, named after himself. And just to ride with Moly because everybody knew about Moly. And um, so he was the famous bus driver. Once again, so I did a little backtracking there. Once again, 10 years later, he buys another bus. He buys another bus. He buys another bus. 10 years later, he owns 10 companies, one of the richest men in Kenya. So amazing, amazing rags to riches story. Stop the story right there. Stunning NPR piece. Stunning rags to riches <laughs> uh -huh. piece. That's a story unto itself. Uh -huh. This is just where it starts. Oh. All right? It gets fun from here. Here's where the irony comes in and we get a story. So we have Molly has eight children and a wife that adores him. He met this wife, by the way, while um, working labor jobs, and she was um, also an impoverished laborer. Um, so they met themselves. He, he met her in his early days before success. They stayed together and seemed to have a stunningly inspirational, beautiful relationship um, that 
after gaining all this wealth, he starts buying all these cars. He lavishes children with gifts, um, but has still a great man, still has all this love in his heart, but he is absolutely wrapped up in, I have made it. I am wealthy. I deserve this. And I have put up a blockade of the life I came from. I don't even remember being on the streets. This these are my words and perceptions, not his, um, that he has become a fully engaged, successful man um, who treats his family well, treats the community well, but not particularly philanthropic and certainly has forgotten where he came from um, intentionally. I think um, to save himself has forgotten where he came from. It's too painful. He can't visit it. But those things don't ever go away, as, as we well found out. And so one day, this very wealthy man with his eight children going to prep schools and his wife who lives a luxurious life and servants in their house and multiple cars that get traded out every six months and snazzy cars and snazzy suits. One day, I forget where he was. It was a small village he had to go to for some reason, very similar to the one that he used to beg in. And some street kids, very similar to himself as a young man, ask him for some money, and he, of course, brushes them off and walks on in his very fine suit, leaving his very fine car parked on the street. <laughs> and what they're basically doing is saying, if you give us money, we will watch over your car. Uh -huh. What they really mean is if you don't give us uh -huh. money, we will not watch over your car. In fact, right. quite the opposite. Yeah. He returns to no car, just some broken glass and a few fragments on the street, freaks out like any rich man would, calls the cops, tries to track it down, and has a crisis of, what do you call it, a crisis of? Of conscience. Of conscience. And um, at this moment, he goes into a deep depression. His family doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't want to go to work. This is a workaholic who does not want to go to work. He, even owning all of these companies, uh, manages to show up at all of them individually, not the head honcho CEO that's not hands-on. He still comes down to the garage and checks them out, even though he owns 20 of them. He still comes down to the bus line, even though there's thousands of buses. He still drives a bus once in a while because he wants to keep in tune. Um, things like that. He literally quits going to work. His family is like, what is wrong with our dad? On and on and on. And when he comes out of this depression, and I'm sure I'm missing a few things here, but when he comes out of this depression, he comes to his family one night at dinner, very calmly, very securely, that he's had, he has a God moment, a white light moment, as he will say. Um, he actually even puts it in terms of God speaking to him. Um, when it comes out of Molly's mouth, religious or not religious, you would not be offended hearing this. Um, you would believe him when he told you this. I believed him. And, um, and so his God moment, his white light moment, his cathartic moment, basically said, give away all of your stuff, everything, and start saving street children. Give away everything and start saving street children. Wow. You have eight children and a wife who have lived the better parts of their life as the wealthiest of the wealthy in Kenya. Give it all away. Make them all sacrifice. Don't ask their opinion. Don't ask what they think. Put your wife in a situation where she has to labor all day over children that you're pulling in off the streets. Um, take away the privilege of your children to have a happy household with money. Um, give it all away. They think he's insane. Everybody thinks he's insane. Moly the insane man. So from Moly the rich man, Moly the respected, Moly the wealthy, Moly the success, to Moly the madman. Um, everybody thinks he's nuts. He brings home three more children every day. All he does is go out and drive to villages and every orphan he finds on the streets. And by the way, Kenya has an epidemic of children on the streets. Every orphan he finds on the streets, he brings them home. Can't fit them all in his house. He gets up to 100, 200. There's no room for his own kids anymore. He sends them away off to private prep schools because he can't take care of these children and his own children. 
a lot of sacrifices being made here by a lot of people that don't understand why he's doing this. And they do it anyway, his wife included, his children included. And they interject these interviews with his wife and his children talking about how crazy he is during this because they're falling it all the way through. But by the end of it, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and cut to the end now. We're just going to cut to the end. By the end of it, he has established not one, but five at this point, self-sustained mass compounds that can house, feed, nourish, labor as up to 1,000 to 2,000 orphan kids each. He has somewhere around eight to 10,000 orphans in his system total. Um, every one of these is sustainable because he has a moment where no donations are coming in, his money has finally run out, and he has hundreds of children to feed that he can't feed. And he looks at his wife and says, have faith. You want to laugh, right? You want to say, screw you, Molly. What do you mean have faith? We have no money left. You keep bringing home more broken kids. Our kids are away. We're terrible parents. What do you mean have faith? The next day, I don't know if it was the UN, the Red Cross, somebody comes in with thousands of pounds of food. They had heard buzz about what he was doing, and they are saved. From that point on, the donations start gushing in. Molly doesn't want to be supported by donations because he was a beggar in his youth and doesn't want to be a beggar in his old days, but they have to take donations. So little by little, he's like, how can we become sustainable? How can we be self-sustaining? He makes them self-sustaining. So he basically did, in one lifetime, he did what would have been twice, did what would have been mind-blowing for one man to do in a lifetime. He did it twice. Built an empire from nothing. Gave it away. Built a new empire on nobility and love of orphan children. And so, to even go beyond that, Molly has all these sustainable, still jolly, they all call him Ma, or Pops, or Dad, they all call her Mom, the, and his, his wife. All of the children work for their organization. It's a well-established, incorporated organization at this point. Um, it has become one of the saving graces of Kenya. He even made their property, they pan planted forests on their property that literally changed their desert land into a new microclimate that got more rain than the area around it. And so their crops are flourishing. And when you would see the wide, beautiful shots of their landscape, it would be this little green haven in the middle of the desert. It was genius. All wow. these greenhouses sprawling across the land. Um, absolutely amazing what he did. These children's success rate and collegiate rate is the highest of any schools in all of Kenya. Um, most of these children went from the streets straight to the universities. And um, not straight to, many years with the Moli organization. And um, the success rate was stunning. He had the highest test scores of any schools because they established schools, of course, on the compounds. Um, absolutely astonishing. By the end of it, Every one of the children still works for the organization. They all have director roles of different things that play to their talents. Every one of them say, we, somewhere along the way, we finally learned, just trust our dad. That in the long run, when he seems crazy, he's probably more right than anybody else around. And it was a beautiful, beautiful story. Very high brow for Molly. Please wow. go see it. Wow. All right, cool. So, um... I attended on Saturday night. I went to the, uh, they don't do midnight screenings here. They uh, think the latest films start around 10. This one started at 10 on the Saturday night. That's another thing I would like I think, to see, actually. I would love to see some midnight screenings. Yeah, yeah, but this was very much the, what would have been the midnight screening 
uh, at another fest. It's very much the like midnight madness type screening. It's just the 10 o'clock madness because people go to bed early in Charlottesville, I guess. <laughs> That's um, exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah, so. The 10 o'clock screenings are the midnight screenings at right, this festival. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so I went to um, back to Newcomb Hall Theater and saw a film called Knights of the Living Deb, which was directed <laughs> by Kyle Rankin who was present uh, to do the Q&A, as was the star, Maria Thayer, and the cinematographer, Thomas Ackerman. Does it surprise anyone that with a title like that, it did not make my shortlist? <laughs> so this is a film that is a zombie... Uh, it's a zombie comedy, essentially. It is... Well, I mean, I'll just say it flat out. It is a zom-rom-com, a term that was created by... Uh, the makers of a film which is it is impossible to talk about this film without discussing which is uh, Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead which is a film that casts a very long shadow it's probably the most well regarded zombie comedy ever made and it's definitely the best thing I can say about this film is that it does not slavishly imitate Shaun of the Dead, um, which is actually really a really great thing. And I think with a lot of films, if I said the, if I said the best thing I can say about this film is it's not like this other film, that would be kind of damning with faint praise. But it's not in this case because it's really, really hard to escape the shadow of a film like that, which which carved out an, an entire entire niche for itself. Um, I like I had a lot of fun with this. Actually, All right. this is a film. It's about a Surprise turn. it's about a young woman named uh, Deb, obviously, <laughs> who um, she manages to seduce the town stud, has a one night stand with him. And they wake up in the morning and the zombie apocalypse has started. Um, Maria Thayer plays Deb. And basically they are um, attempting to get across town. Uh, they, 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 after their one night stand, they don't really want that much to do with each other, but they're forced to have to work together and get across town and either get out of town or figure out a way to stop this. So, um, they can save themselves and their, uh, friends and families. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it in, that's pretty much a broad strokes plot synopsis. Um, this film succeeds in very large part due to its leading lady, uh, Maria Thayer, who plays Deb. She really goes for it, you know? It's one of those performances you love to see, and she's a character actress, has had role. Uh, she was in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. She's the cute redhead from that. She was in another film where she's the cute redhead, and in this film she was the cute redhead, but... <laughs> She had just so much spunk and so much just verve and so much just like... You love those characters in horror I, films. You do. She was scrappy, you know? <laughs> and she was super scrappy. And it's great It's great to see a film like this with a female lead who kicks ass and who isn't um, sort of, you know, cowering and whimpering and being saved all the time by the dude. Saying... She saves the dude a couple times. Yeah, you definite know? props to the female lead. And... Yeah. Um, it, and, you know, it doesn't take itself that seriously. This is a film directed... I said the director is Kyle Rankin. He made another He made another film a few years ago called Infestation, 
which uh, I saw, actually liked not as much as I liked this film. Am I wrong that he's a regional director as well? I th- no, he's from uh, Portland, Maine. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Um, but uh, yeah, there's some local connection with this film. I think that's how it got on. But this film also played at Fright Fest this year. Oh. Uh, so it's it's made the rounds. It actually, he said in the uh, Q and A afterwards that it it did get picked up for uh, UK distribution. Uh, UK probably DVD no surprise there actually after Fright Fest. Yeah, and this yeah. is a film. You know, this is the kind of film that does really well on video. That's how it's about. It's to say. like you know the it's the Saturday night you know beer and pizza rental kind of thing. It's, well, I remember when we were first talking about this just off the synopsis before we went to go see it, and I was like, "You are going to go see that, right?" Because uh-huh. I just knew it was a colon film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I liked it a lot more than I, I liked it a lot more than I thought it would. I mean, it doesn't do anything new, <laughs> you know. It it kind of, it it's the same old beats. But uh, I had I had a lot of fun with it, and um, it's extremely low budget. The film Infestation that I talked about, Kyle Rankin's uh, previous film, it's a big bug invasion movie, very similar tone to. Sort of like a jokey comedy take on a classic horror. Set up. Um, so it seems like this is what he's doing. Yeah, and he does it very effectively on extremely low budgets. And, I mean, you could tell that this movie was made for practically nothing. I believe this was crowdfunded, actually. This was a Kickstarted movie. But certainly intended um, um, intended parody. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's the kind of film that doesn't need... It's okay that it looks a little cheap. Yeah. It's, it's sort of part of the aesthetic. And there's that really, you know, you watch enough of this kind of film, and God knows I've watched plenty <laughs> of this kind of film. It, it's a, you know, you start to have a real appreciation for that kind of spunky, low budget charm and the kind of slightly crappy, but really honest, like, let's put on a show. Let's yeah. make a movie kind of attitude. That's just another that way has. of, once again, um, dealing with obstructions and, and, mm-hmm. and learning how to use a lo-fi. Um, yeah. You can do it in yeah. a lot of different ways. Yeah. And, um, and a low budget. And this is, in, in that genre, this is a, a nice way to go about it. Uh, yeah. So this film, I mean, there's not too much more I want to say about it. It was really fun. I, I definitely give it a high brow. I definitely recommend seeking it out. There are... It was it was a pleasant, very pleasant surprise, um, and the film does have two aces up its sleeve. One I already mentioned was Maria Thayer, the lead, um, and the other is the cinematographer Thomas Ackerman, who was also present for the Q and A, which is a really nice surprise. Mm-hmm. This is this is a guy. I mean, you won't recognize his name, but he's he's been shooting films since the seventies worked with Tim Burton, he shot Beetlejuice, he's worked with Ooh. Albert Brooks, he shot um Anchorman, he shot um uh I can't remember all all his credits. There's like four or five that really stand out, but he's worked with a lot of people. He shot a lot of, you know, good-looking films and not the most mind-blowing mm-hmm. in you know, he's not a Lubeski, but he, you know, film looks really good. He knows exactly what to do with the film. And he, this was actually the most interesting Q&A that I attended because of his remarks. Somebody asked him, again, I really, I don't want to pile on too bad about the, the question askers and the Q&As, but there's some really, really dumb questions being asked. Somebody asked, um, again, about a film that is obviously super low budget. Somebody asked if they shot it on film or digital. <laughs> and after 
as as nicely as they could, saying we shot this on digital. Yeah, uh, as nicely as, <laughs> as they nicely could. as they could. Um, Ackerman went on a little bit of a not quite a rant, but a very interesting sort of um, explanation about how, in his words, film is officially dead. He hmm. and it's it's so interesting to hear a cinematographer. You know that's been hmm. that's been working on films since the '70s. Say without any hesitation at all, film's over with. Well, that's unique. Um, I would actually go on to say that's that's somewhat naive as well. That's that's a pretty strong stand because mm-hmm. there's a lot of cinematographers with more notoriety than him saying the exact opposite. Most of the main release films that we see coming out of Hollywood are still shot on film, mm-hmm. way yeah. more than fifty percent of them. Right. Um. So the but those are mainstream. The predominant medium to shooting a well-budgeted film is still film mm-hmm. not digital and even with all the technology when they have the ability to choose they choose film right so well i mean they you know that's a that's a blanket statement but yes well i'm saying it, it's uni- hard to generalize uni- universally that if you yeah. have the option rarely does someone choose to shoot on digital unless it's for very specific reasons unless you're david fincher right exactly <laughs> exactly but, very specific uh, reasons yeah but yeah, I mean, it was really, really interesting to hear him say that because, like Todd said, I haven't really heard many cinematographers say that. And yeah, it was kind of most aren't admitting that. Yeah, as it a was comprehensive or as a um, yeah. It was really, it was really interesting to hear. Kind but, of universal uh, take. But yeah, uh, so Night of the Living Deb, highbrow, very pleasant surprise. I was, I was, I was, uh. I left, I left that screening a lot happier than I thought I was going to be. Two little throw-ins I want to throw in real quickly. I obviously didn't see the film, but just thoughts that it brought up was I remember when we were talking about this ahead of time, and and I pointed out within the plot summary or the synopsis that um, oh they mixed it in with the Walk of Shame. Mm-hmm. That's got a little creativity to it, or that's right. that's a cute little gag. And and Colin kind of rolled his eyes because he knew it could go either way, and he was absolutely right. Uh, I'm very happy to see that that actually played well. Yeah, there's it's one of those things. It's one of those small differences. Like there's enough that they did just a tiny little that, bit differently. Which when I read the synopsis, that's how it stood out. Right to, to me. make it just a little that's bit a fresh. Different. Oh, also Ray Wise is in this. I forgot to say, all of you B movie lovers know Ray. Uh, Ray Wise, and if you don't, you should. He's yeah, cool. you know always I'll, good value. I'll look him up. I don't know him. Sorry, what's the other? Do. And so the other thing is um, a nice little. Once again, I love my little um, film student, film school lessons that come from something that Colin said, which was that he got a DP that was um, well above what you would think would be the percentage of budget that should be going to the camera department in this right. film. <laughs> that um, I saw a very personal, very intimate Q and A with. Um, Jeff Nichols. So Jeff Nichols calls up his buddy David Gordon Green for some advice. They went to the same film school in North Carolina, actually, the only other film school in North Carolina other than the one I went to, and um, and said, man, how am I going to make this film look worth anything for $70,000? How can I make it look good? I want it to look like your films looked. And he said, he goes, dump all of the money into the camera department. <laughs> he goes, figure out the rest. That was his advice to him. He goes, the one thing you want to pay for is your DP and your camera department. And so it sounds like um, that uh, your director on this film uh, played by those rules as well. Hired himself a great DP, um, spent all his money on the camera department and said, I'll piece together non-actors, I'll piece together locals, I'll piece together whoever I can get, I'll pay for a couple of actors and then I'll flesh it out. Not a bad lesson to you up-and-comers if you want to take the honest, independent route. Yep. So Todd also attended a midnight, a, a quote-unquote midnight screening on Saturday. <laughs> Let's do call them midnight screenings. Okay, They yeah. end at midnight. Yeah, exactly. So Todd also attended a midnight madness screening on Saturday. 
Todd, what'd you see? So my lovely midnight screening at 10 o'clock was, I think I can comfortably say, the most subversive film in the Virginia Film Festival. I can't fathom one that would have possibly topped it. And so my great elation in watching this film was that the Virginia Festival actually exhibited this film. Um, It gave me a lot of faith in the fact that a relatively socially conservative town um, with a festival that doesn't particularly make a point to push subversive buttons um, was willing to um, accept a film that was this edgy. Um, It made me very happy. Um, I would think that a predominant amount of Charlottesville community supporters, particularly the older crowd going to films, would not have responded very positively to this film. And probably the reason, I was guessing that it was just late and people were tired, but I'm pretty sure the reason 20 to 30 people stood up and left in the middle of this film Mm. wasn't because it was bad. (laughs) It was because it was uncomfortable. I won't say a mass exodus, but definitely a notable exodus um, from the film. So I'll read you the summary right quick. Um, the director is um, Ulrich Seidel. Um, it's an Austrian film, 81 minutes. Um, there's um, English strewn all throughout. It's mostly in English, but there is... Um, um, I don't know if there ever had to be subtitles in it. I don't think so. But um, In the Basement is a revealing documentary that delves into the dark underside of the human psyche through an exploration of Austrian basements that were created as private domains for secrets and fetishes. The film treats the opera-singing gunslinger, the Hitler-loving brass band, a hunter of exotic species, and the passionate devotees of S&M with an equal measure of curiosity and compassion. No desire or proclivity is off-limits for Maverick director Seidel's Seidel's camera. Um, That's that's a pretty ominous summary. There was the only through-line connecting any of these scenarios, other than stylistic aesthetic presentation, is that it happens in a basement. That is literally the only through-line. And so you literally... I gotta quit saying literally. So you basically (laughs) go... Start. I can't even remember what the opening scene was, but you basically are taken immediately into these basements. They don't explain anything. There's no exposition that they're assuming that in the basement already gave you all the exposition you need. <laughs> and it did. And indeed it does. And indeed it does. You are never confused about what the through line is. Um, or where you are. Or where you are. <laughs> and believe it or not, there are a few scenes that are shot outside of the basements. Oh, okay. In the people's homes when they come upstairs, particularly the S&M couples. Um, so... Every scenario they focused on, they they went through numerous stills and flashes of basements that probably equaled somewhere around 15 of very unique people in their very unique basements with very subversive and and, and, um, unique fetishes and interests. But most of them would just simply be almost... They, they designed it like a static to where they, they basically, and they did this with every single scenario of every basement. So they had about 15 scenarios that they showed and then about five that they developed. And so the ones that they simply showed briefly were shot as a static. Everything was shot as a static, but it was a shot as a static still. So they would have the one or the two people who owned the basement stand and look directly into the camera Almost like the old, it was the old famous farmer pitch stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. American Gothic. American Gothic. And so stare directly into the camera, completely still, completely expressionless, 
for as long as the filmmaker wanted them to. Almost <laughs> as if the filmmaker hadn't told them the camera was rolling and said, stay as still as you can until I roll. Right. You know? <laughs> and just stare into the camera. And when I roll, I'll, I'll tell you. It almost like he had fooled them into it. So he had this exact same shot of every single couple or individual in their basement, which was obviously stretching the limits of documentary filmmaking. It, it was very designed. It was very um, choreographed and very um, staged, blocked, all of the above, which is always interesting to me in documentaries when you do that sort of thing. Um, in this case, with this kind of documentary and it being the kind of experimental um, approach and, and subject matter that it was, I had no problems taking with them taking that formalist approach. And it still jolted me out a few times, but, but not at all offensive because of the experimental nature of the film that I felt it was very much within the lines of, of the production mode. So all of those shots being very eerie and very effective, of course. And so they would basically show you a few of those quick shots and then land on one of the basements they were going to focus on where you actually hear the characters talk, you actually watch what they do down there, and you actually follow their stories. There's about five of those stories that they follow, and they'll stay on them for a while, leave them, go to another one, and then return back. And so you kind of follow them intermingled and, and, and amongst each other. Um, the one of the Nazi Hitler-loving brass band dude... <laughs> is unbelievable. Actually, all of them are kind of unbelievable. This one was my favorite by far, um, and, and not the one that was the most subversive, actually, um, or the most, certainly not the most uncomfortable for me, but that's probably just me, um, that there were literally pictures of Adolf Hitler everywhere, and it was the idea that nobody had any issues with it at all. That, and they never ever said he was a Nazi. They never said that he actually believed in these things. But he had his little mustache. He was an alcoholic um, by admission and very structured alcoholic. Um, but he didn't actually say alcoholic. What he said was, he goes, I do drink a lot. I, 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 and then he explains how he drinks. It's before playing, he has to have a certain amount of shots. After playing, he has to have a reward for good playing. And throughout, there's also some drinking involved. And so his friends who play in the brass band come over, and they hang out in his basement with all the Nazi stuff. They have no issues with it either, which only leads me to believe that they're all kind of aligned as far as their sociopolitical um, ideals. Um, but the quirkiest and most uncomfortable situation with this brass band sitting there practicing these songs with nothing but Nazi paraphernalia and pictures of Hitler and he talks about this one picture of Hitler that's his most prized possession that was given to him as a wedding present and how he almost cried when he unwrapped it and yet never ever addresses anything that would lead you to believe that Hitler was a bad figure in history. <laughs> Once we move into the S&M, which starts about halfway through the film. So the one complaint I may have on the film is that they maybe didn't integrate things as well as they could have. That it felt like a couple of different toned films at different times, even though you had that very consistent aesthetic, that very consistent through, and the very consistent intercutting of the other basements um, with the statics of them. Literally a still on motion film. And... So once we move into the S&M, there's two different S&M couples that we deal with, two or three, and that gets, um, that, that, that gets a little hairy. <laughs> and, um, and so for my own personal, I think this has probably come through on a, on a few of our podcasts, that I'm very uncomfortable with violence and sex. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's just personal. Um, no judgment whatsoever. Um, numerous friends that have um, various proclivities um, in those directions that I 
rule of thumb from me to each their own under all circumstances, as well as nobody's getting hurt and all people are enjoying themselves and, and are, are obviously um, condoning adults. Um, and, and in these cases, that was absolutely the scenario. There was one in which, very uncomfortable to me, uh, the domineering, and I don't even know the right language for S&M, forgive me, but, um, but a very domineering woman who was very open about it with a very passive love slave um, who was a very big, burly bear of a man, which made it even more uncomfortable to watch. She did extremely abusive and painful things to him. Um, there were devices to wrap cords around his um, scrotum and pull as hard and as high as she could like all these devices that were rigged up in the basement. They both seemed comfortable in the relationship. He never spoke because she didn't allow him to. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it, it was, it was I, 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 I shuffled and squeamed and, yes, um, felt all the discomfort that was intended um, and, and maybe a little extra during those parts. Um, there was another S&M couple that actually was – came across as very playful. Um, and, and the woman was actually a prostitute, and then the gentleman um, had to admit that, that prostitutes really tend to like him. That's why he hangs out with prostitutes, because prostitutes really, they, 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 they tend to like me, and they give me a lot of attention. And, you know. and, um, and at first I had to giggle when he said that, of course. You know, you're paying the man. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, and a lot of times they don't make me pay. And then you figure out the nature of their relationship. It ends, the, the entire film ends actually with a shot from that scenario. That it ends with, um, with this relatively overweight prostitute in a, in a cage that really doesn't fit her well at all, trying to get comfortable, and then cuts to black, and that's the end of the film. Um, but um, so the three, I, see, I guess the three, the three dominant scenarios that go on would, would be the brass band Nazi one and the two S&M scenarios. And I believe there was another one in there that was relatively... Oh, yeah, the opera singing gunslinger. I forgot about him. He was great, too. He had a gun range in his basement where, where he taught guys how to shoot. And he was actually a really sensitive, thoughtful man. Um, very ethical, extremely quirky, extremely eccentric. But um, but actually, um, like, they would talk about sociopolitical things and, and the guys that, that were coming to his, his little basement gun range that he was teaching um, how to shoot um, had some... What I can only compare to extreme right-wing um, American political views, um, almost um, along the lines of some of the, the ideology put out by, say, maybe some of the Tea Party um, type um, um, political ideals. And so some of the men around him seemed to be the equivalent of that for Austria. And, um, and he would correct them. And he would he'd kind of like stand up for the nobility of, of causes and, 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 and for tolerance and for understanding of Muslims. And, and you can tell that was not the popular idea amongst the guys hanging out in his basement, you know. And so it was, it was, but the guy was very uncomfortable as well. So he was a fun little scenario. That was the, the most lighthearted of the scenarios to watch. The, the Nazi guys were... were probably the most entertaining to watch. And then the S&M was by far the most disturbing to watch. Um, you did see live sex. Um, they didn't show necessarily the parts, but you did see long extended scenes of live sex and sexual acts happening, full nudity um, numerous times. Um, you're looking at the penis, the scrotum, the balls, everything in full exposure on the big, hairy, burly man as she's performing her, her various tasks on him. And um, so, yeah, once again... As subversive and far-reaching and edgy and, um, yeah, as, as probably anything I've seen at a festival, to tell you the truth. 
Um, because of its presentation, I think it kind of fooled people a little bit. Um, it was extremely intelligently shot, very artistically shot. The framings were actually pretty brilliant. And if you're going to do nothing but static framings that are a repetition, they need to be pretty intriguing framings. Um, very Wes Anderson-esque at times, actually. Mm. Very centered, symmetrical framings that almost made you uncomfortable with how symmetrical they were. Um, so, yeah. So, um, all around, full intrigue throughout the film. I definitely could point out some things that I thought could have been done a little better, um, where I felt like it kind of lost itself a little. It got a little too absorbed in some of the S&M stories to where the, it no longer felt like a balanced film a few times. Um, but overall, tried and true to the in the basement, and, and I think it did exactly what it wanted to do. It left me feeling uncomfortable and entertained. Late night screening where I was never once not interested. Um, I was certainly uncomfortable, but not, not interested. And um, highbrow. In the basement. I would actually encourage anybody that, that can handle viewing those sorts of things to, um, to seek this out. Um, it, it was a, a very well thought out and, and, and um, well executed film. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And where, where did this screen? Oh, it was at Violet Crown. Violet at, Crown. At 10 o'clock. Oh, okay. And so once again, and, and I think once again, the biggest thing that I pulled from this was so much hope and, 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 Ha ha hoorah, let's go Virginia Film Festival. That that very proud of them for accepting a film like this and for screening a film like this. That was it for time. So the last scene I saw in the Virginia Film Festival <laughs> was a overweight prostitute. Overweight in a prostitute cage. in a cage. <laughs> go to black. Nice. <laughs> Pay to black. Very nice. Uh, all right, so that that was it for Todd. I was able to take in a few more films on Sunday, five more films specifically. Um, so, uh, I'm just going to go through those real quick. Got up on Sunday morning <laughs> and went back to Culbrith, uh, theater at UVA to see, it was the only repertory screening that I saw at the festival. Um, it was a film from 1933, uh, directed by Roy Del Ruth. It was called Employee's Entrance. A uh, little scene film uh, uh, from that was made by Warner Brothers, um, and it was it was projected from a restored 35 millimeter print on loan from uh, the Library of Congress Film Archives up the road in Culpeper, and it was uh, it was one of the screenings that was introduced by one of the guests of honor at this uh, year's festival, Mr. Leonard Malton. Ah, is that one? Yeah, the big big name. Uh, he, they had him along to program. I think he, he was a guest programmer. I think he programmed three films, uh, this being one of them. And he introduced it, gave a nice talk about it, um, sort of highlighting the pre-code era, that being the Hayes Code, um, essentially a censorship um, or a code of what you could and couldn't put on screen that was uh, instituted in the mid-30s. Very relevant to the uh, cinematic um, evolution in America. Yeah. Played a huge role in the language that we wrote. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So he uh, he talked a little bit about that and how this film was an example of the pre-code era and some of the things to uh, look out for in it. Basically, the story of a ruthless businessman uh, portrayed by Warren William um, who 
takes over the operations of a large department store in New York in the late 20s. Uh, and we follow it through the boom years, and then, of course, the Depression happens, and we see how he attempts to continue making money and turning a profit for this um, business, and he is very take-no-prisoners. He's the kind of guy that'll... um, He'll, you know, uh, if you if you do one thing wrong, he'll fire you and but keep the work you did. So he makes money off of you, but he doesn't have to pay you kind of thing. Um, exploitative, just like the worst, the, the like epitome of a vulture capitalist, I guess, like worst capitalist imaginable. And uh, there's a woman who works in the store that he has a relationship with. And uh, that also his assistant has a relationship with. So there's a little bit of a love triangle, except where the uh, lead guy is concerned, it's more of a lust triangle. He doesn't exactly rape her, but he essentially sort of forces himself through intimidation, emotional abuse. It's one of those old Hollywood, like, very ambiguous kind of sexual situations where it's not flat-out rape, but but today we would probably call it essentially, you know, it's because it's a boss on an employee, so there's, there's that fine line of consent, you know. What Malton pointed out in his intro is this guy, he does horrible things, but you still kind of like him because he's very true to himself and who he is. Uh, and, I mean, I don't know if I really agreed. I didn't like him very much. Um, but uh, very interesting interesting film, interesting story. I mean, it's, it's, it's short. It's one of those 75-minute early talking films. It, 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 you know, it clips along at a pretty good pace. And um, it had... I think it had some really interesting things to say about society at the time and about um, business uh, and capitalism, you know. Um, essentially, it's a story of the boss abusing the workers. It ends happily, but he doesn't get his comeuppance. And that was the other thing that Malton said to look out for, that after the Hayes Code, one of the one of the things in the Hayes Code was that wrongdoing must always be punished. Mm-hmm. And you would always have to see, somebody could sin in a film, but they would have to get their comeuppance at the end. And where do you think our nicely packaged resolutions come from right, today? Right, exactly. In this film, it was, it was kind of great to see that even though it had a happy ending, it was essentially the 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 lead uh, anti-hero, I suppose, was left to continue doing what he was doing. Yeah, and uh, you know the the and good the good couple were able to escape escape from that and go off into the sunset. Uh, you know, I have a little bit of a fascination with taking unlikable protagonists and finding unique cinematic ways to invest the audience in them. What did you find there, successful or not successful? Uh, it was a really great performance. The dialogue was snappy, and he really embodied it. He's got... I The actor Warren William is not somebody I'm, I'm familiar with. I'm not either. But I... Essentially, he had a physicality that was comparable to Vincent Price with the voice of a Claude Rains. Okay. So really powerful voice, really, really forceful, really forceful deliverer of dialogue, and this is what you're going to have to do for me, and if you don't do it, you're going to be fired. I'm going to throw you out on your on your tail, and I won't feel a single bit of compunction about it. A really good job. And I think, I think you do like him just because he's sort of... He's forceful about everything, including getting you to like him. But yeah, uh, interesting film. 
I really was grateful for the experience to see Malton uh, introduce a film yeah. and uh, hear his remarks. What other chance am I going to have to see a film like this, which is not very much seen today anyway, oh, probably yeah. wasn't very much seen at the time, you know, projected from a, a, a print. It's a rare treat. On, a, on, you know, on the big screen like that. It's so a very, very rare fun. treat. Awesome. Um, that alone makes it worth watching, honestly. So the next uh, next film, I went and grabbed some lunch, and then I headed uh, downtown back to the Violet Crown <laughs> to watch a film called Cemetery of Splendor. This is a Thai film, and it is directed by someone whose name I'm going to do the best I can with. <laughs> Apichat Pong Werasifakul. A director that I'm not familiar with, but who apparently has um, is fairly well known as a Thai uh, auteur. So this is a film that has to do with a hospital that has been converted. It used to be an elementary school. It is now a hospital. Good start. Um, it's it's in. It's a, obviously a pretty poor, small hospital in what seems to be a somewhat economically depressed part of Thailand. But I wasn't quite – I think there were some cultural cues that I was missing because I wasn't exactly sure of how everything related to each other spatially in this film. But um, there are ten Thai soldiers who have come down with a mysterious sleeping sickness, which means that they just sleep. Uh, they wake up periodically, and they are awake for a couple hours, maybe a day, and then they spontaneously fall back asleep again. And uh, nobody can figure out what's going on, why these people are, are, are sleeping, and why they won't wake up, or why when they do, they inevitably uh, go back to sleep. And uh, the main character is a woman named Jen, an older woman, I'd say, I don't know, 50s or 60s, who actually attended the elementary school that the hospital used to be, who is volunteering, and she sort of develops a close relationship with the soldier who has no family that she's looking after. This is another film that falls very much in the category of magical realism. Mm -hmm. It is pretty exquisite to look at, um, but ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this film is slow. Oh. <laughs> it was the middle of the day. I just had a fairly big lunch, <laughs> and I'm not going to lie... I felt like there were several times when I felt like I was coming down with my own version of the soldier sleeping sickness <laughs> while watching this film. But Sounds a little parallel to my Lucifer experience. But the thing about this film is I think it's meant to put you to sleep. Like being slow is kind of part of the aesthetic of the film. It would make a lot of and sense, it, wouldn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, obviously these soldiers who are sleeping are at the center of it. And... It, it, it sort of ties in with the themes of the film. I think, you know, the tone and the themes sort of come together in this. It kind of slows you down. 
every shot is held for way, way longer than a Hollywood director, uh, probably three times longer than a Hollywood director would. It's minimal music. I don't think there's, I actually think there's no music. Everything you're saying is making me really want to go watch this film. It's an interesting film. There's no music until the very end. Like the very last scene, all of a sudden there's music. And it's one of those, it's one of those times where you hear the music and you're like, oh, <laughs> Oh, there's like films have music in them sometimes, you know. I love that. <laughs> and um, so, uh, yeah, you haven't given me one single deterrent yet. <laughs> um, I will continue to not give you deterrence. So I am not very familiar with Thai cinema at all. I've seen some Thai horror films, and I've seen a handful of Thai action films. Tony Jaa, you know, it's um, impossible to be interested in world cinema and not have run across those films but um other than that i'm not really familiar with thai cinema the closest thing i could come there are actually two directors that stood out to me um american directors that i could draw comparisons to the first one was david lynch mm-hmm. uh <laughs> this film is extremely dreamlike, not in the surreal, bizarre David Lynch type of way, but there was definitely a lot of uh, David Lynch will do that thing where just by choosing his moments very carefully, he gives the mundane world a very otherworldly um veneer cut away to a light bulb five right times exactly yes. yeah 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 and this this film has like <laughs> minute long shots like literally 60 second or longer shots of just the the room with all the soldiers sleeping and they have these beautiful lights that are next to their bed that cycle through colors of light and you're just watching the colors of light change very slowly and um it's really and it's just silence or maybe the drone of the ceiling fans is all you hear. And you just hold on that for, like I said, way longer than any Hollywood director would, would just be tearing his hair out saying, why don't you cut kind of thing. Um, interesting film. The themes of the past uh, sitting on top of the present levels of, you know, what, what has happened in this very space you're occupying? If you could go all the way back through geological time, what would you see? Like it, it's the kind of film that raises those kind of questions. And the other, Excellent. the other American director that I was reminded very strongly of is Terrence Malick. <laughs> um, with that same really slow, really languorous, like, hey, there's a scene going on, but, but this fallen leaf looks really interesting. <laughs> so w- after the characters say their dialogue and walk away, I'm just going to focus on this leaf for about 20 seconds. The, the, <laughs> say their dialogue. Right, right, exactly. Um, so really beautiful, beautiful film. I can't say that I was completely engaged 100% of the time. Sounds like it might fall more into my wheelhouse. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, the premise uh, made it sound like it... Because we discussed this. Yeah, there's ghosts. Yeah. There's uh, suspicions of a conspiracy that the the like the fiber optic cable company is is digging these holes, and you think they're gonna like find some graves. The whole the whole idea is the hospital, which is built upon the elementary school, is also built upon 
the graveyard of the kings, which is built on top of where the palace of the kings used to be. Uh. So there's like four levels, and all of these, all of these timelines. When you go, when the soldiers are dreaming, their energy is being used to. Fe- um, it's complicated. There's definitely and some there's direct- goddesses that take human form that come into. So it seems like it could be more in my in my area, but it's definitely it's more of a Todd film than a Colin <laughs> film. At the end of the day, very interesting that this was one that um, Colin and I had both read the synopsis and talked about a little ahead of time, and both of us were very interested in this film. Yeah. So so it 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 fits that mm-hmm. that's how it played out, um, as well as um, oh, there was something else you said that caught my attention about it. Um, Oh, the, the layers upon layers upon layers. You'd mentioned earlier that there were perhaps some um, issues of cultural relativity, that there were you know, per- perhaps things that um, were specific to Thai culture that were probably there that you know, simply we can't catch on to. And it sounds like mm-hmm. for sure that within that layering that there was probably some cultural yeah. understandings that are outside of our scope. Yeah, and, it's, and there's the sense that if you can slow this isn't something that comes from the film this is an impression that i got from the film there's a sense that if you can slow your mind down enough because it's all about like the pace of modern life versus the pace of 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 life in the old times if you can slow your brain down enough then all of these timelines can exist simultaneously And it's like it's like a mindfulness. It's like a movie that's meant to like lull you into this hypnotic mindfulness. mindfulness. Um, I I think this just um, keep an eye out on my blog. I'm pretty sure this is going to be listed um, as as my featured film to see. Very interesting film. I mean, I might have sold it too hard with the Lynch and uh, Malik. I mean, I know you know Todd's going to obviously jump at something like that. But um, interesting film. (laughs) <laughs> highbrow. Oh, I forgot to I forgot to give employees entrance the highbrow too. So I'll go back cool. and do that. Highbrow for that officially. Employees entrance. Boom. And uh, cemetery of splendor. Highbrow. Not for everybody. It's a uh, a smidge over two hours. It's a little long, but it kind of has to be. You know, for the kind of film it is, it's a little slow. It's v- a little slow. It's very <laughs> slow. But but it kind of has to be for the kind of film that it this is. It sounds like meditative slow. And uh, very yeah, relevant. Highbrow, not one hundred percent my kind of film, but it's definitely the kind of film that doing this podcast has prepared me to have more appreciation for. I was just about to point that out as well because I've there's one we haven't discussed that I had the same experience with. Yeah, that I felt like my appreciation was. I was way more tuned in than I would have been before this podcast. Right on. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So um, that was Cemetery of Splendor. Highbrow. So next I went back to Vinegar Hill. Yay, Vinegar for Hill. For my last Vinegar Hill screening, which was a documentary called Semben! Exclamation mark. I was very Semben! interested in this one. Exclamation too. mark. So this is a documentary about... Um, Usman Semben, the Senegalese novelist, filmmaker, um, uh, revolutionary. I had I had read a novel of his called God's Bits of Wood, which is an incredibly powerful novel um, that I encourage everybody to read. Uh, when I I spent a month in Senegal about ten years ago, and I became aware of him there. Um, he is 
hugely influential artist. Um, started his his career as a novelist in the mid '50s, I think. Made his first film in the early '60s. Widely considered, in fact, pretty much. Uh, universally considered the father of African cinema was he 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 was the creator of the first sub-Saharan films made by black Africans for black Africans <laughs> um, he was the first African appointed to the jury at Cannes um, that's funny I actually I have just placed him I knew I knew the name like we touched on him in film school. Yeah. yeah uh, totally forgot about Also that. A, a very, very controversial artist, hugely political, was one of these uh, intellectuals who saw his art as vehicle of protest. Um, he, um, racism, sexism, colonialism, uh, government corruption, uh, workers' rights, female genital mutilation, uh, religious extremism, every issue that you can think of that is pertinent to West African daily life, he addressed in uh, written, in literary or in film form. Uh, so how well did the documentary... Controversial. I mean, he was, ba- you know, he had films banned in Senegal and he had films banned in France. Uh, his... Uh, one of his most famous films was banned in France for ten years, wow. <laughs> and uh, you know finally got a got got a release there uh, pretty shortly before he died. He died in two thousand seven. Sounds like another one like the Black Panthers. Um, pretty tough subject matter to do appropriate justice to with a documentary. Right? How did they yeah. do? So this is a this is an interesting case where I don't know how much credit to give a documentary for how fascinating its subject is. Um, My question with Molly. Right. Exactly. Extremely, (laughs) extremely fascinating man at the center of it. And, I mean, as a documentary, eh, it it didn't seem to have a ton of focus. Um, It's sort of... it didn't exactly know whether it wanted to be about the man or about his work. Uh, um, I think it aired a little too much on the side of being about the work. I would have liked to hear, you know, when I go into a documentary about a person whom I'm already interested in, um, I like to hear, I hope to get some insight into what made the man what he, he was. Uh, we didn't really get much of that. It was basically more just a cataloging uh, and description of what he did. See, this is another really great filmmaking lesson that Colin just presented to us, which was that a brilliant subject matter does not equal a brilliant documentary, um, that a brilliant subject matter is not your story, right. um, that your subject matter is not your story, um, that in making a documentary just like any other film, you still have to have a story. You still have to know what your story is. Or if you're making a biopic about a historical figure, you still have to have a story. Um, so in all these things, so a really nice lesson to filmmakers is that, you know, don't forget to know what story you're telling. Yeah. Um, and know what story you're telling before you start telling it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like in documentary filmmaking, it's a little, you know, you might have to work your way into knowing what story you're telling. But right. somewhere along the way, you got to find what story you're telling. And if you don't find it, it's going to come across a little bit, no matter how brilliant the subject matter is, how brilliant the footage is, how well you did with everything else. If you don't know the story you're taking or telling, that you're going to lose people somewhere. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it definitely. to tell too much story. I definitely came out of the film wanting to watch more of his films. Cool. I, I definitely came out of it wanting to read more of his novels. Um, but I also came out of it wanting to know more about him, a certain itch that I feel like the film didn't really scratch that it could have. Right. Um, I, I should mention, by the way, I forgot to say this was uh, co-directed by uh, Samba Gajigo and Jason Silverman. So two directors. And, um, yeah, that's... I give this a high brow because it didn't fuck it up. <laughs> uh, it had a really, really great subject matter, and it it did it justice. It didn't fuck it up, um, but it didn't it didn't go that extra mile to really being a documentary worthy of its subject. Because if you leave a documentary feeling like this is everything that I could have researched on my own right. and found on my own, then why did I have to watch the documentary? Like, I want you to reveal something new to me. Give me a new perspective. Give me a new outlook. Mm-hmm. Something unique, even if it's not facts and figures, mm-hmm. a unique perspective. Very and, well said. Exactly. Yep. So the next film I saw and the last one that we're going to talk about on this uh, oh my show. Goodness. Yeah, we're at the we're end there. already. Yeah. Was a film called Miko which is directed by Sterling Harjo. This this is a film about a uh, a Native American man who has been locked up for I think 19 years in prison and he's released from prison and he is uh released onto the streets of Tulsa, Oklahoma which is the big city that is nearest to where he grew up. Uh, He grew up in a rural town, which is pretty much uh, a ghost town now. So he's in Tulsa. He has some family. He goes to visit a cousin, and she pretty much wants nothing to do with him uh, because of some unspecified uh, but obviously very real mistakes that he's made in the past. This is a narrative. It is a narrative film, yes. It is not not a documentary. Um, so, and this, this gentleman whose name is Miko, um, becomes, uh, a homeless person. He's living on the street and he is living in a, what seems to be a pretty tight knit community, um, of, of native American, of homeless native Americans, uh, living in Tulsa. They have a camp on the outskirts of town that they camp at. They go into town to sort of beg and um, uh, do whatever they can to eke out this very basic existence that they're living. Uh, And you're introduced to all of these characters, and apparently this was shot in um, uh, and around the real uh, homeless community of Native Americans in Tulsa. All native cast, it says. All yes, all native cast, which is pretty huge, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you don't you don't see too too many films that that can claim that. And uh, 
Sterling Harjo, the director, is um, is native himself. And well, we always talk about where um, where the film industry has um, so many times paradoxically fallen so far behind on so many social issues, and yeah. um, and obviously parallel to our nation itself, that um, Native American and um, concerns are are once again another that that have never been done justice by the American film industry. And if anything, have probably been done quite a bit of damage by the American film industry. And so I'm always um, pulling for these films yeah. to get out there. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And to represent themselves. So, so there are two other central characters, um, or really three other characters, that Miko is involved. Really four other characters. <laughs> He's got his best friend in the homeless community, whose name is Bunny. Uh, who's an older guy that he 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 develops a very strong uh, bond with, and they sort of it's it's like Bunny and Miko against the world. Uh, there's, oh, that would have been a great name for a movie. <laughs> <laughs> there's a younger there's a younger gentleman uh, who is who very recently homeless, uh, whom they kind of take under their wing. There's a waitress uh, in a local pie shop that uh develops a friendship with Miko and he he can always rely on her for some you know free slices of pie and coffee and for a good B story and for a good B story and there's a <laughs> oh, uh a man who's also homeless whose name is Bill who is an asshole basically <laughs> who kind of sells drugs but pretty much just kind of beats people up he only sell you really get the impression that he only sells drugs to justify being able to beat people up when they can't pay him back is he Devo? what he Devo? yeah yeah he's he's, he, he's more he yeah he, he's definitely a Debo type character well he's like if big worm and Debo were, were combined into... <laughs> i hope you all know those references <laughs> he's like big worm and Debo put together um so <laughs> um and basically after bill commits some uh very very bad and shocking acts of violence. Miko feels that he has to take it upon himself to save the people he cares about from the influence of this, um, the person whom he considers a witch. He, uh, the other element is that Miko is a, a clairvoyant. He can see the future and he can also see witches whom they hide among us in plain sight. They look like people, you might say. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that's a very... The, the supernatural element in this film is very, very understated. It's one of those, how much of it is in his head, how much of it is real. I like that. Good. Um, so this film is extremely gritty, extremely verite. Nice. It has... Um, non-diegetic music and um the production it feels more hollywood than something like well like they look like people that i mentioned earlier which had a very indie very indie aesthetic to it this um it feels like it has aspirations to be more of a hollywood type movie but the interactions between the characters, the dialogue is extremely, extremely naturalistic, and the way the whole thing's shot is, is is verite. So it kind of walks that line a little bit. It's a very bleak film. Yeah. 
Um, it's got some uplifting moments in it, but I think there was it 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 tries to walk that line that I mentioned, but also you get the sense that sometimes he's not exactly sure which side of the line he wants to be on. Right. So rather than walking the line with confidence, right. sort of wavers a little bit. Right. Um, I got to be honest, this film kind of bummed me out. <laughs> like I liked it a lot. Um, conceptually and thematically, I think the whole idea of, I mean, you want to talk about homelessness, like, uh, you know, the theme of homelessness as it applies to Native Americans, people who have been, had their homes forcibly taken away from them, you know, the, the, the epitome of a displaced people. Not to mention the very direct reality that homelessness and addiction is rampant on an epidemic level throughout contemporary Native American society. Right, absolutely. I think the highest levels of homelessness, I know one of the highest levels of addiction out of any community in America. Right, right. And there's a lot of that, inter- you know, there's a lot of internalized um, leftover uh, residue from the brutal, brutal treatment that the Native American nation suffered at the hands of the colonialists. Um so I th- it's an extremely potent and poignant theme uh, and um, universe that this film operates in. And the, it captures the day-to-day reality of being homeless very well, of living on that razor's edge, not knowing where your meals are coming from, all of, all of that, all of that thing that... Um, I've never experienced. I'm very lucky and very grateful to have never experienced, but that is a daily reality for lots and lots of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 it really, like I said, it really kind of bummed me out. Like I, like bummed you out off of effectiveness uh, or not. So I, like there's like some, I think, yeah, I, like str- you have to be very interested. I struggle, point. I struggle with to what degree, the film was successful because it attempts to be uplifting uh, towards the end. Which plays back into which, what you were stating on not knowing which line it's walking. Right, exactly. Not knowing where to go. And it seems like all the elements were there. Yeah. But I don't I, I don't feel it was definitely it definitely did a much better job of being depressing than it did of being uplifting. uplifting. I gave it a four on the ballot. I'd probably, if I were to do it now, I'd probably drop that down to a three. Okay. Not only because of some of these problems I'm talking about, but also because, I mean, it's Tuesday night now. I watched this on Sunday night. Not resonating. Not resonating. I kind of yeah. struggle to remember exactly what went on in the film. And um, I'm glad you brought that up. The other films I saw on, on, on Sunday I have a much better memory of. This one sort of faded away pretty quickly. I give it a highbrow. The things that were strong about it were very, very strong. A great lead performance. I didn't talk anything about that either. But, as uh, well as honestly, really great performances simply, across the board, and I know that a lot of them were non-actors. And honestly, just cheering for quality Native American-driven cinema. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is still in its very very baby stages it's there's like a couple of attempts made every decade right yeah you know and it's 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 just against all odds yeah Uh, yeah so it's always pulling for them absolutely pulling for it um highbrow are you ready are you of the of these of the 16 films that we discussed tonight 
of the eight films that you saw that you discussed. Are you ready to give us your best of fest? I am. Um, and it, it's actually not even a debate. No qualms. I, I actually knew the minute that I saw it with many films still to follow that, that it had already raised the bar and I was going to be shocked if anything beat it. Um, Krisha is by far my pick of the festival and would probably be my pick of most festivals. Yeah. I, I thinking it's going to be one of my picks of the year. It was my golden gem of the festival. I am right there with you. <laughs> as far as as far as narrative features go, yeah. I mean, I didn't see any, I didn't see anything anything that was better or even at the same level same. as Krisha. All right, so you guys just got that. Todd and Colin just agreed without <laughs> any qualms, unanimously, easily, that this was our narrative pick of the fe- of yep. the festival. No that doubt. That means everybody go and lend <laughs> your support to Cretia. Get it in more festivals. Get it a release. Yeah. Get it to some distribution. Mm-hmm. It's a shame if this film doesn't get seen by many people. Yep, absolutely. How about Best Doc? What you got for Best Doc? Hands down, Black Panthers. Yeah. Hands down for me. Yeah, I mean... You know, well, let's see in... Okay, I'll go back and explain, but you go first. Oh, I mean, I was just going to say real quickly, me too. I only saw two docs, yeah. so it's it's a it, pretty easy choice. There wasn't much competition. I feel like I there was competition for me, and I, so I feel like I gave that out way too easily yeah. with what, what I stated. So you got to remember, I saw and you heard my reviews of Molly in the Basement and Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Those are three powerhouse documentaries. Yeah. Um, so different from each other. Mm-hmm. So different that... Black Panthers was the most traditional documentary I saw of all of them. Um, as far as being an honest, independent, historical survey, digging up a premise that is bigger than the history around it and connecting dots and doing really important things in a very, very um, efficient and professional manner. Um, so no, I, I have no qualms about quickly responding that Black Panthers was my favorite documentary. However... I don't want to do it. Brush off the fact that Molly and In the Basement were exquisitely made documentaries. They, Molly was um, high production, high budget, with a lot of Hollywood um, um, push behind it. So, um, so in those ways, it leans me back to the more um, gritty and authentic documentary. Um, in the Basement, I almost consider a hybrid of experimental cinema and documentary filmmaking. It's tough for something that's that staged and that choreographed and that aesthetically artistic for me to put it into the category of pure documentary filmmaking. Um, So to give a lot of props that direction, but, you know, without a qualm, I walked out of Black Panthers and gave it an immediate five. The other two, I gave fours. So um, biggest surprise of the fest this is, uh, for me, I got to go Night of the Living Deb. I didn't think I would like it, uh, or I thought that I would be lukewarm on it, and I came out really uh, feeling a lot of a lot of love, a lot of gratitude for that film. Um, I'm going to say In the Basement. Oh, okay. Yeah, like um, I, I had certainly had expectations, and, and it certainly fulfilled those expectations. I don't think I expected it to resonate with me the way it did. Mm, I don't. Okay. Ex- I did not expect that to be the one I was still thinking about a few days later. Oh, and cool. so um, it becomes more potent to me as the days flow through. Yeah. Uh, biggest disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> buskin blues. Buskin blues. Buskin uh... blues was a buskin bust. <laughs> 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 my biggest disappointment was haters yeah um it looked so good it front. looked it looked it it seemed like 
it was the kind of film that it was impossible for me not to like. And you had universally felt that way. Yeah. Both of us felt that way when we read it. That's why it was such a big disappointment. I wasn't crazy about I Saw the Light, but I didn't have high expectations. Right. Well, I actually went in with particularly, I actually went in wanting to dislike I Saw the Light more than I did, which really helped me. So going into a film that you think you're going to hate saying I'm going to hate this, Gives it a much better chance. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, haters, I, you can call me a hater of haters. All right, so are you ready to wrap it up and talk about next time? I think we are. So Todd and I had such a great time at this film festival <laughs> that we don't want to let it go. We felt like we could squeeze another episode's worth of material out of this. So last time... We promised you uh, Alucarda and All About My Mother. We still intend to do that episode. We will bring that to you. Um, But in the same uh, or as close to the same format as our regular format, but still incorporating films that we saw at this year's VFF, for next time we are going to discuss in depth Two films that we didn't talk about this time And we did assign these to each other. We did assign these to each other. Todd asked me... To see by the notorious father of Canadian experimental avant-garde cinema, possibly one of the fathers of world avant-garde cinema, um, Guy Madden's Forbidden Room. Yep. And uh, I asked Todd to go and watch a film, a Norwegian film called The Wave... Uh, directed by Roar Utog. You did much better than I could have. <laughs> I have no idea how it's actually pronounced. That's how it looks. Roar Utog. And, um, One so... of my few experiences with a disaster film. Yep, yep. Now here's the, Next time. Here's the one little uh, creative uh, kicker on this. I have not seen The Forbidden Room, which I assigned to Colin. And I have not seen The Wave, which I assigned to Todd. So that'd be the one thing that is a uh, kind of interesting twist on our normal format. But other than that, we're going to approach this with our, as our normal format, um, simply doing festival films instead of uh, main release films. Yep. So for next time, we'll, we'll be happy to bring you uh, The Wave and The Forbidden Room. And until then... Keep it artsy. (laughs) And keep it crass. Okay, good people. As always, we would love to hear from you. The email is artscrasspodcast at gmail.com, or you could say hi on our Facebook page. There is another podcast called Arts and Crass. They have a white logo. We have a red and black one. Should be pretty easy to tell who's who. She thinks I'm beautiful. Meet Virginia. She never compromises, loves babies and surprises, wears high heels when she exercises, ain't that beautiful, meet Virginia.